Dana Schutz, who happens to be a white artist, did this painting, uh, which just did not reproduce well in any context because it's um, sort of three-dimensional. It has a big gash in the middle. So this painting is based on um, the image of Emmett Till in his casket, his mutilated body, the image that really made a major difference in the civil rights movement, and the image that his mother, Mammy Till, really wanted seen. She wanted seen, and it, it was very, um, uh, it was mobilizing, because it's really an atrocity. So Dana Schutz did this painting uh, with the intent to bring, again, the attention to violence over the bodies of black men. And protests started immediately. Uh, this young man is Parker Bright, and he's an artist. And he stood uh, in a performance the first day in front of the painting protesting its, uh, its appearance. And then Hannah Black, who I mentioned before, she, um, she uh, publicized a letter and a petition that was very broadly circulated, um, saying a lot of things. Among them, the subject matter is not Schutz's. And that's, you know, that's, that's key here. White free speech and white free creative freedom have been founded on the constraint of others and are not natural rights. The painting must go. The painting must go. Oh, goodness. We're going to come back to that here in a little bit. But first, let's, uh, let's get the show on the road, huh? Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom, this is fear. We are not the government. The government is not us. This is the Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. This is episode number 79, live on Alternative Internet Radio. Coming at you from Mega City 3 on this, the 8th of October. And oh boy, do I have news for you! <laughs> Shit's going down in Dallas, my friends. We've got a couple of interesting articles to get through. We have an interesting case at the Supreme Court. Plenty of really interesting news. Actually, uh, did I say I had one interesting article? I can't remember if I said it that plural because I actually have two. You heard a clip from something in one of those interesting articles earlier at the beginning of the show. My stream tonight was delayed. I do have to tell you this. I am, they up, they uh, upgraded my IceCast on the server side. Uh, IceCast is what runs on the server that allows me to broadcast live. They upgraded that and it changed one of the URL heads. And so I had to go in and track that down. But I got it working because I am nothing if not determined. 
All of that out of the way, let's get on to our interesting articles. Our first interesting article comes at us from the New York Times. Published on the 4th of October, written by Andrew Morantz. This you probably saw floating around on the internet. This article's headline is, Free Speech is Killing Us. Noxious, noxious language online is causing real-world violence. What can we do about it? From the, from the, uh, from the article. I'm just going to read the first uh, couple of paragraphs, because I don't want to... Uh, frankly, I don't want to dignify this thing with too much. Uh, there's never been a bright line between word and deed. Yet for years, the founders of Facebook and Twitter and 4chan and Reddit, along with the consumers obsessed with these, pro with these products, and the investors who stood to profit from them... I have to stop this right fucking here, actually. Um, the product is not Facebook and Twitter. 4chan is a different story, but Reddit falls in with Facebook and Twitter in this discussion. The product is not Facebook and Twitter. Those are not products. Those are services. The product is the user. The thing that's being sold by those companies is you. You are the product. Your data. Your eyeballs. You are the product for those companies. They are not the product you are. I just wanna I just wanna clear that up and remind everybody of that because this guy just said that these are the products, and they are not. They are services. You are the product. Uh continuing. Uh, the investors who stood to profit from them tried to pretend that the noxious speech prevalent on those platforms wouldn't metastasize into physical violence. In the early years of this decade, back when people associated social media with Barack Obama or the Arab Spring, Twitter executive referred to their company as the, quote, free speech wing of the free speech party. Sticks and stones and assault rifles could hurt us, but the internet was surely only a force for progress. No one believes that anymore, not after the social media-fueled campaigns of Nar uh, Nardinia Modi. Uh, Narendra Modi, I pronounced that wrong, and Rodrigo Duterte, and Donald Trump. Not after the murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, Virginia. Not after the massacres in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. Uh, two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, and a Walmart in a majority Hispanic part of El Paso. That's all of El Paso, I'm pretty sure. The Christchurch gunman, like so many of his ilk, had spent years on social media trying to advance the cause of white power, but these posts, he eventually decided, were not enough. Now it was, quote, time to make a real-life effort post. He murdered 51 people. Having spent the past few years embedding as a reporter with the trolls and bigots and propagandists who are experts at converting fanatical memes into national policy, I no longer have any doubt that the brutality that germinates on the internet can leap into the world of flesh and blood. And I'm gonna stop there because this uh, fucking concern mongering is uh, headache inducing. Um, I, I'm gonna actually archive this. I don't want to give this too many clicks. I'm gonna archive it, and the link to this in the show notes will be an archive link. Um, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond, <sighs> I've always said that the internet is the real world, that the thing, I believe the thing that brought the internet into the real world was the Justine Sacco situation. I think that taught everybody that what happens online does not necessarily stay online and can have very real, very harmful, uh, consequences to the individuals involved. Uh, often innocent ones. Um, so that that side of this is of no surprise to me. The concern mongering is, and the point of this article is basically, so what can we do about all this free speech? And later on in the piece, I call it an article. It's not an article. It's an op-ed. Later on in the op-ed, 
the <laughs> this fucking guy <laughs> fucking shit stick goes back and talks about the uh the Rwandan genocide from the story uh several paragraphs down in 1993 and 1994, talk radio hosts in Rwanda calling for bloodshed helped create the atmosphere that led to genocide. The Clinton administration could have jammed the radio signals and taken these broadcasts off the air, but Pentagon lawyers decided against it, citing free speech. It's true that the propaganda speech would have been curtailed. It's also possible that a genocide would have been averted. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I, 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 I didn't, I was not aware <laughs> that calling back to... Genocide was something we were allowed to do now in this conversation, um, especially mischaracterizing genocides in this way. If you notice, he tries to create a direct link between these things, but he talks about how it helped create the atmosphere that led to genocide. Like, this was one facet of a multifaceted issue that happened. That event doesn't come down to talk radio. There's more there than that. Just like, it would, that's like saying that the entirety of the Third Reich comes down to Mein Kampf. That's not the case. It's absolutely not the case. And to simplify, oversimplify, and uh, lead your readers into, into believing a falsehood in this way is, uh, well, you know, I thought mischaracterizing genocide in the name of, or in, in a conversation about free speech was a neo-Nazi thing, but I guess liberals can do it fucking too. Jesus fucking Christ. This made me so angry. I'm moving on from that, though. I don't want to get too hung up on that. I want to move on to something I think is good. The National Coalition Against Censorship, the NCAC. I love these fucking people. They need more eyeballs. They need more attention, the NCAC. Absolutely love them. They do really good work. They posted a piece about a, uh, a, a talk that was given at Harvard Law School, at the, at the Harvard Law School Library. Uh, cancel culture. Can free speech in cultural institutions survive the onslaught of moral outrage? From the, uh, from the, from the post. It's more of a post. It's not really a piece. Uh, from the post. During Band, bu during band Books Week, uh, Svetlana Mincheva, I hope, uh, NCAC's director of programs, spoke at the Harvard Law School Library on the effects of contemporary moral outrage on the arts and culture. Mincheva discussed specific examples of institutions and artists who have felt pressure to modify their exhibitions and to block or remove offending artwork. She also examined the dangers of self-censorship and the role of cultural institutions in the national reckoning of historical guilt. Uh, cancel Culture, Can Free Speech Survive the Onslaught of Moral Outrage, was co-sponsored by the Harvard Law School Library, ACLU at Harvard Law, Harvard Law School Rule of Law Society, Law and Philosophy Society, and Harvard Federalist Society. Uh, and then the post goes on to thank the Harvard Law School Library. Um, the, the full video is in this. It's going to be in the show notes as well. Um, and it is a fascinating talk, and I love it. That's that quote, that, uh, that, that clip that you heard at the beginning of the show. That's from this talk. I recommend listening to it. It's only about an hour long, uh, 54 minutes, and it is absolutely worth listening to every minute um, because this is exactly the conversation that I think should be had, and the fact that it's happening at Harvard, who we will be discussing again this episode, um, is a surprise, to say the least. But let's move on to the news. In the news, this from CNBC, published on the 6th of October, uh, written by Pippa Stevens, which is quite a name. Um, not making fun of this person. They're just, uh, they're, they're, well, oh, goodness, this story. 
Oh boy. Uh, there's a theory that stingy millennials are to blame for the sluggish economy. Uh, millennials, the selfie-obsessed avocado toast-loving generation, might be behind slower economic growth, according to a research note last week from Raymond James. This new generation, scarred by the financial crisis, is saving more than the free-spending boomers did before them, and it's causing an economic imbalance. Jake, immediately in the chat, oh god. <laughs> yes, oh god indeed. According to data from the St. Louis Federal Reserve, the current U.S. personal savings rate, defined as income minus spending, is 81% as of August. By comparison, in 1996, the rate was 57%. I'm sorry, 5.7%. Did I say... I need to reread that because I screwed that up somewhere. Uh, data, St. Louis Federal Reserve. Current U.S. personal savings rate defined as income minus spending is 8.1% as of August. By comparison, in 1996, the rate was 5.7%. Um, and the higher savings rate, I'm sorry, quote, the higher savings rate, we believe, has had a di uh, disinflationary impact, driving the relatively slow growth and low inflation in this recovery, causing the incentives for excess supply the disinflation and deflation biases in the global economy, Raymond James anal uh, analyst Travis McCourt wrote in, an, in a note to clients Thursday. One of the earliest financial lessons people learn is that saving early and often is key. However, while saving is beneficial for individuals, a slowdown in spending hurts businesses and therefore the economy. Since the recession, quote, supply increases have continued, which coupled with a higher savings rate has led to, quote, excess supply seemingly everywhere in the economy, McCourt notes. Quote, this leads to frustratingly low growth, deflationary biases in prices, excess supply, and increasing debt from the supply side attempts to improve the situation because the savings rate is going higher, he says. Uh, McCourt chalks up the increase in savings to a, quote, generational change. Following the financial crisis, millennials began to save more, and this habit is becoming increasingly important as they replace, quote, baby boomers as the primary income and spending generators. Uh, Maxo in the chat, anything to deflect from the Fed, the real cause of the business cycle. That is exactly right, sir. Um, Maxo has standing in this arena as well, if you did not know, dear listeners. Uh, quote, the U.S. consumer has had enough, so they're saving instead of purchasing like the last generation, limiting demand growth, he said. I also have a problem with this on another level, and I'm done with this. I also have a problem with it on another level, though, and that is um, millennials carry debt like nobody's business, mostly student loan debt, and outside of carrying that debt, th that this debt is different from the debt that Gen X and boomers carry. Boomers and Gen X carry a lot of consumer debt. They like putting their purchases on credit cards. This is a, this is a kind of a, it's a common theme for the boomers and Gen X. Uh, Gen X was kind of forced to wise up in 2008, but they still, they, they, that's still part of that generation. The debt that millennials are carrying is, is it is frustratingly, uh, how, how do I, how do I even put this to make it, how do I paint this picture? The debt that the millennials are carrying is not consumer debt, it's student loan debt, and it is a massive burden. If, if a millennial has been to college, if they've been to school, they are likely carrying thirty to fifty, even up to a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt for a four-year degree. If they go to graduate school, hitting a hundred thousand dollars is almost guaranteed. So, I'm millennials aren't we're not a miserly people. There are two factors that I think are interesting about millennials. If you look at the numbers, 
Um, and I looked at these when I wrote, there was a piece on the rogue file that I wrote concerning millennials. And when I looked at some of these statistics, I was fascinated by them. Uh, millennials don't spend money on shit. That's another interesting, uh, interesting fact about millennials on the average. Uh, spending on shit is not something that we do. Millennials are interested in experiential spending. We spend money on, and I say we because this is just millennials on the average. Of course, there are exceptions, but, um, and there are a ton of exceptions, but millennials spend money on skydiving and, uh, you know, they might go on a boat. They might go do zip lining. Like millennials, millennials spend on experiences. They don't spend, you know, on a massage or something like that. They don't spend on shit. And boomers and Gen X spend money on shit. They just buy stuff. Millennials want to buy experiences. That's part of the problem, is that if you can't sell a bunch of millennials a bunch of shit, yeah, you're going to have excess supply. That's just one interesting factor that uh, has come to mind in talking about this kind of thing. But yeah, millennials being stingy. Outside of that, I mean, outside of that, we also have an increase in housing prices, that, that or an increase in... Uh, in the price of housing, generally rents and mortgages that millennials are finding it hard to cope with, especially since they're already carrying tens of thousands of dollars of debt. So yeah, uh, I say, fuck you, St. Louis federal reserve fucking assholes. Um, millennials are carrying a ridiculous burden in the current economy. They're hit hardest. If you look at shadow stats and you look, if you look at the uh, Bureau of labor statistics breakdown of who is actually unemployed, and you, uh, and I did this in that article. I might just link it in the, in the show notes. Um, it's a little bit old now, but I think the, the sentiment is still true, even if the numbers have changed. Um, the, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers on who is unemployed, millennials are a massive cohort of unemployed people. And if you correct the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers with shadow stats numbers, um, and, find even a middle ground between those two, the number of unemployed millennials is insane. I think in that article, I found it was somewhere around 40% of the cohort as a whole. And that was while some millennials were still students, so they don't really count as unemployed. Now, at this point, most millennials are no longer students. I, I think there might be one more year. No, no, I think all the millennials would have graduated. Uh, Maxo in the chat, they were blaming excess supply on consumers. If you have too much inventory, then you have miscalculated. Artificially depressed interest rates and the distortion of relative prices caused by credit expansion caused these miscalculations to occur with a cluster effect. Makes sense to me. I, I, I think, um, Maxo, I need to ask you to write something or come on the show or something like that just to talk about these things because you know more about this than I do. That's, this is Maxo's, uh, this is his game. This is his area is economics, especially conversations like this and i'm i'm fascinated by what you think about this max so we'll have to set something up and get you get you talking about this because i need to i need to learn more economics is something that's always fascinated me but i've always on, I've, I've only ever had a a layman's understanding of it good god it's almost impossible i hate this it's almost impossible for me to read this next story because of the number of scripts I'm having to unblock. I'm just going to have to open it up in another browser that'll let the scripts through. That is absolutely nuts. It won't even load the content. Jake says he's never liked the generational categories. I agree. They're a little broken, especially once you get down to millennials. Things are, 
Things are a little broken. There we go. You got the story to load. Finally. Uh, maybe you build your website, your website with uh, CSS instead of fucking JavaScript. Um, this was something I saw floating around on Twitter today. Uh, published on the 8th of October by the Como News staff. This is on ComoNews.com. Several guns seized from Redmond Man after concerning Twitter posts for Joker movie. Redmond, Washington. A 23-year-old Redmond man who police say made, quote, concerning Twitter posts posing with weapons and referencing the new Joker movie, has had several guns, including two assault weapons, removed from his home as part of a, quote, extreme protection order, Redmond police said. Investigators became aware of the posts last week, including one dated September 26th, showing the man holding two AK-47 guns, one in each hand, pointing skyward, fingers on triggers. The caption in the photo read, Quote, one ticket for Joker, please, according to Redmond Police. Now, that is funny. That is a joke. We on the internet call a funny joke. The post comes as U.S. officials had issued warnings about the potential for mass shootings at the movie, which opened on Thursday to increase security around the Seattle area movie theaters. Um, yeah, that, that the media created. Jesus. A potential that the media created. The media has been fucking begging somebody to shoot up a showing in this movie. Begging for it. It's disgusting. FBI intelligence officials had uncovered social media posts related to extremists classified as incels. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> fucking stop it. If I ever see, ever see a fucking webs, a news, a, a, an article that would purport to be news talking about incels again, I swear to God. Ah. Short for involuntary celibate, and the man had been claiming to be one of them. Investigators learned that the man had previous disturbing and threatening social media posts toward women in 2017, according to Redmond Police's petition for uh, a petition being granted, uh, petition for an extreme protection order being granted. I just rewrote that sentence for you, Como News. Thank me. More recent posts last month show the man with several guns in his home tucked into his waistband or displayed in wooded areas, police said. In addition, he showed photos of high-capacity magazines filled with rifle rounds and indicated he uses gun kits to make, quote, ghost guns. Guns without serial numbers, according to police. This is fucking hilarious. Um, the man had been issued a concealed permit license in uh, a concealed carry permit or license? Jesus. Maybe, maybe do an edit pass. In May, for two handguns, but he was found to have eight weapons and his license has been revoked. Reverend police said police officers were able to remove all the guns from his house Wednesday without incident. Quote, with the upcoming release of the movie that uh, that suspect indicated he would bring firearms that the suspect indicated he would bring firearms to the Redmond police are troubled that moviegoers may be at risk of serious injury or death if uh, the suspect continues to have access, possession or ability to purchase firearms. Reverend police said in their petition for the protection or the order would last for one year. The man has not been charged with a crime, but is expected to have a court hearing on October 15th. The man does not have a prior criminal history, nor have police had contact with him before, according to Andrea Wolf Buck with the Roman police. Oh, God. Is that... Am I the only person to whom that whole thing is fucking hilarious and terrifying? You can't make a joke on the internet without some motherfuckers kicking in your door and taking your guns. This is... You, you thought you were free. You thought you were free in America, didn't you? You thought. You thought you were free. Real fucking free wheel. Absolutely disgusting. Next story. Also published on the 8th. This one from, this is uh, from Reason. Written by Scott Shackford. 
Gorsuch may be the may be the swing vote in decision whether civil rights acts protects LGBT workers from discrimination. Now this is pretty interesting. We talked about this before a few episodes ago. We talked about this case. Uh, let's just go right to the story. Textual arguments about what sex means as a matter of statutory interpretation took center stage at the Supreme Court today, as the justices listened to attorneys argue that the Civil Rights Act in 1964 protects LGBT people from workplace discrimination. Based on today's questioning, it may well be Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch, who serves as the swing vote. Is it Gorsuch or Gorsuch? Uh, Maxo points out, and this is true, I, 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 I missed this. Uh, that's a mischaracterization of the CCW to make it seem like all weapons must be licensed. The permit is for the individual. Yes, that is accurate. They said that he received a concealed carry permit for two handguns. You don't receive the permit for the handgun. You receive it as an individual to carry a handgun, a concealed handgun and uh they also said he, they received it for two handguns but he had eight guns and it's like yeah he you're allowed to have however many guns you want you can just have guns like you don't have to because you have a concealed carry permit it doesn't limit the number of guns you're allowed to have that's yeah that was a it, that was a bad poorly written article um and it was it was designed to make you it was designed to be scary it, it was playing into this fear surrounding that movie which is fucking hilarious i've been bagging on cnn on twitter for the past like three days because they won't stop covering that film and just how terrifying it is and it's like god would you would you learn to code <laughs> back to this story uh based on today's questioning it may well be trump appointee neil gorsuch i think that's how that's pronounced i've only ever seen it spelled who serves as the swing vote and he might even be leaning toward including sexual orientation and gender identity under the civil rights act workplace self-discrimination protection sex discrimination protections this morning the supreme court took two hours to consider three cases of people being fired from their jobs allegedly for being gay or transgender to determine whether this was a violation of federal law two of these cases focused on men being fired for being gay and were combined into one argument bostock v clayton county and altitude express v zarda in these two cases, the employers denied that the employee's sexual orientation contributed to their firings, but even if it had, the employers argued, the firing still did not violate federal law. The third case, RG and JR Funeral Homes uh, versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which involves a transgender funeral home director, was heard separately directly after the consolidated oral arguments of the first two cases. In the transgender case, the owners of the funeral home have made it clear they have religious objections to accommodating transgender employees and would not allow amy stevens to switch to wearing women's clothing after her transition the overall conflict today pitted civil rights and gay rights advocates david cole of the american civil of uh, the aclu uh, represented the fired transgender funeral home director against attorneys for the employers and against u.s solicitor general noel francisco the justice department under president trump has taken the position that neither sexual orientation nor gender identity are protected as the law is written and argue that congress should add the categories through the legislative process which would be fine um, while it's clear that Congress did not intend to cover sexual orientation or gender identity back when the law at issue was passed in 1964, there was little interest among the justices in discussing what Congress, quote, intended. Much of the discussion and debate was completely, was completely textual, interpreting the common meaning of what the statute says and how it should be implemented. Several justices made it, made it abundantly clear that they were attempting to decide whether discrimination against LGBT folks could be classified as a type of sex discrimination and not what Congress was thinking when it passed the law. At one point, Justice Elena Kagan told Francisco directly, quote, the lodestar of this court's statutory interpretation has been the text of a statute, not the legislative history. Thus, much of the entire debate revolved around the extent that discrimination against gay and transgender people is comparable uh, to discrimination against men and women on the basis of whether they believe, uh, whether they behave 
in an expected stereotypically masculine or feminine manner. The distinction is relevant because of a previous Supreme Court precedent from Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins, in which the court ruled that discrimination on the basis of whether or not a person behaves in the manner expected of her sex is forbidden under the Civil Rights Act. That case revolved around a woman who said she was discriminated against because she was too masculine and aggressive. The case was invoked repeatedly by all sides as they compared what happened back then to the three LGBT workers in these new cases. And that's where Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch expressed interest in considering that there is, in fact, a textualist argument that sexual orientation and gender identity might be protected under the Civil Rights Act. Solicitor General uh, Francisco argued that sexual orientation and gender identity were different traits than simply sex. But Gorsuch pressed, at le quote, at least one contributing cause here appears to be sex, and that in particular two gay men seem to be discriminated against because of the sex of their partners. The same thing would not happen to heterosexual workers. So how... Could sex not be playing a role here? But while Gorsuch seemed open to the argument that LGBT discrimination is based on sexual stereotypes, he also seemed to express a bit of hesitation during the second hour when the court discussed the case of the transgender funeral home employee. Oh, I think you're finding Gorsuch's line. Uh, Gorsuch asked Cole, I'm sorry, quote, Assume for the moment that I'm with you on this textual evidence. It's close, okay? We're not talking about extra textual stuff. We're talking about the text. It's close. The judge finds it very close. At the end of the day, should he or she take into consideration the massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision, and the possibility that that Congress didn't think about it, and that that it uh, that is more effective, more appropriate, a legislative rather than judicial function? That's it. It's a question of judicial modesty. Cole responded that he didn't think a ruling would result in an upheaval because transgender people already exist in America and have for a while. Employers would still be able to apply sex-based dress codes as long as transgender workers are able to dress as the gender they've chosen and not be forced to dress on the basis of their birth sex, Cole argued, quote, at the end of the day, the objection to someone for being transgender is the ultimate sex stereotype. It is saying, I object to you because you fail to conform to this stereotype, the stereotype that if you are assigned male sex at birth, you must live and identify for your entire life as a man. This is a true generalization for most of us, and it's not true for 1.5 million transgender Americans. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice, uh, Justice Samuel Alito seem to, prefer it, uh, seem to prefer to leave it up to Congress and state lawmakers to hammer out solutions, but their questioning was not overly hostile. While there was also a lot of questioning about the high likelihood that the Supreme Court will have to weigh in on issues relating to which bathrooms and facilities transgender people should use, and which team transgender athletes should play for, uh, Justice Fred Kavanaugh asked just one question about how to draw a distinction between the literal and ordinary meanings of the words because of sex, and the question did not hint at which way he might rule. Justices Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, meanwhile, all seem to support the LGBT side. Though Ginsburg asked many questions trying to determine how far ruling in favor of the three employees might expand beyond just the workplace. The decisions are expected in June, right in the middle of election season. You can read the transcripts of today's arguments. Uh, and there's links. This is a very interesting case to me. Um, just because I want to see how they thread this needle. They can only come down on one side of it. I mean, really. They, they could, they could determine that uh, in the two, the two uh, that are concerned about homosexuality, those two cases could go one way and the transgender case could go the other. I would argue, in fact, that the transgender case is probably more likely to be, like, based on the actual thing. I mean, discrimination on the basis of sex, uh, sex and gender being as closely related as they are and gender being the issue with the transgender individual, I would argue that that's probably more protected than who a person wants to fuck like that would that that's more relevant 
I would think, to the, to the text of the actual statute, than who a person fucks. That's, who a person fucks is a sexual orientation. But when you're dealing with a person's gender, you're, you're dealing very nearly or very closely with the person's sex. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how they thread this needle. I want to read the, uh, I need to, I'm going to, I need, 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 need to read these opinions. I need to read these opinions when they come and talk about them on the show. Because they are threading a needle here. Because ultimately, when the statute was written, they were concerned about discrimination against women. That's what the whole statute's about. And I'm not going to say it doesn't, I'm not going to say it doesn't apply in spirit to the LGBT community, but you have to make it work with the text of the statute. And I, I don't know, they're threading a needle and I want to see how they do it. Seems shaky to me. Seems like it would be shaky legal arguments to thread this needle and come down on, on, on uh, protection for the LGBT community under the act. Let us move on. This was also published on the 8th of October. Miami Beach's $100,000 fines for Airbnb rentals are illegal, court rules. I'm just going to bang through this pretty quick. Probably not going to read the whole thing. From Reason, written by Eric Bohm. Massive fines levied against Miami Beach homeowners who rented their properties out via Airbnb are illegal under state law, a Florida judge ruled on Monday. Miami Beach had imposed huge fines in an attempt to prevent residents from offering short-term rentals. The city argued that the massive penalties, ranging from $20,000 to, to $100,000, were necessary because smaller fines have been insufficient to stop homes from being rented on Airbnb and similar services. The city's also considered jailing residents who violate a ban on short-term rentals, but Miami Beach's crackdown on Airbnb is, uh, quote, in jarring conflict with a state law capping municipal fines at $1,000 per day, Judge Michael Hansman ruled. Quote, the caps set by the legislature may not, in the city's view, be adequate to force or motivate Miami Beach's wealthiest property owners to comply with these ordinances, Hansman wrote. Quote, the city may or may not be correct, but that is a matter it must take up in Tallahassee. Hansman struck down the city's ban on Airbnb as illegal and unenforceable, which means short-term rentals are once again legal in Miami Beach, at least until the city council approves a new ban, which seems likely. For now, that's good news for property owners like Natalie Nichols, the longtime Miami Beach resident who filed the lawsuit, which resulted in Monday's ruling. Let's read her quote just real quick. Quote, this ruling vindicates the property rights of all Miami... Oh, that's not her. I'm sorry. That's Matt Miller. This ruling vindicates the property rights of all Miami Beach own, uh, homeowners who share their homes as short-term rentals, said Matt Miller, an attorney with the Arizona-based Goldwater Institute, which was representing Nichols. Quote, home sharers in Miami Beach no longer have to fear that they will end up in financial ruin for exercising this essential property right. Uh, I'm going to stop that there. I, I just found that interesting. Um, okay, so FIRE has a legal update. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's an update on due process issues. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs and then sort of run through it and, and pull, I think, a couple of interesting things out of it. Um, uh, this is written by Samantha Harris, published on the 4th of October to thefire.org, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Um, as the Department of Education continues to consider more than 100,000 comments on its proposed new Title IX regulations, the tide of lawsuits from accused students who allege they were denied a fair process in campus judicial proceedings continues to rise in the courts. Five new federal complaints were filed in September against Eastern Kentucky University, the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, the University of Pittsburgh, Rice University, and the University of Maine, Farmington. September also brought three new federal court decisions, continuing to reshape the relationship between higher education and the judiciary. Most notably, on September 23rd, a jury found Boston College liable for breaching its contract with the student who was wrongfully found responsible for sexual misconduct in a case of mistaken identity. 
Uh, they go in to talk about that case. Uh, from further down, still, as two other September rulings illustrate, the court continues to be an imperfect vehicle for students who are seeking relief from unfair university policies and procedures. Last week, a federal district court in Tennessee dismissed a student's lawsuit against Vanderbilt University, stemming from his expulsion from Vanderbilt without a hearing, without the opportunity to confront his accuser, and without the opportunity to see all the evidence against him. Setting the tone for the rest of the opinion, the court noted early on that courts have a, quote, limited role to play in how private universities address sexual misconduct on their campuses, and that's the court's review of a university disciplinary procedure, uh, and that the court's review of a university's disciplinary procedures is, quote, substantially circumscribed. The, the court first dismissed the student's claims of Title IX sex discrimination because he had not alleged enough facts to connect any flaws in the investigation or its outcome to gender bias. The court then dismissed the student's breach of contract claims because the student had not pleaded any facts to suggest the university deviated from the procedures set forth in its student handbook and sexual misconduct policy. Um, moving on. I think that's it. That's it from this story. I am going to drop this in the show notes. So definitely go look through this. There's more information on, on a few cases and um, kind of how they've been decided. I'm, I'm Title IX, uh, Title IX reform is a huge issue. We've talked about it before on the show. Needs to happen. Due process is... <laughs> it's hard to understate <laughs> how important due process is. It's the most important. <laughs> and the fact that there is a, a... The fact that there's a system in place in public universities that strips individual human beings of that right to due process is... It's a travesty. And it, it needs to be addressed. And I believe it's going to be addressed. It's just going to take a lot of time. We have another story from Fire, published on the 7th of October, written by Robert Shibley. This concerning the heckler's veto, an interesting topic that I talk about often. With Homeland Security Chief's aborted speech, Georgetown Law submits to heckler's veto. This morning, Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Kevin Mc, uh, McAllen, Allenen, ooh, was scheduled to address an audience at Georgetown Law's 16th Annual Immigration Law and Policy Conference. He planned to give remarks and then take questions from the audience, but he wasn't the only one with a plan for his speech. Hecklers, bent on preventing him from speaking in the audience from hearing his remarks, came with one too to disrupt the event and prevent McAlilla from being heard at all. The speaker and audience lost. The heckling protesters won. Georgetown authorities did nothing effective to stop it, thus a heckler's veto was born. The event was live-streamed on YouTube and it is currently still available to view with action starting about 21 minutes in. You guys want to see how it sounds? Let's see how this sounds. It's going to take me a second, but I'm going to move it over to... I'm going to... Uh, I say it starts about 21 minutes in. Let's track it down. I didn't plan on doing this, but let's do it anyway. Let's go in about... Let's go to 21 minutes exactly. Oh. Oh, a little late. Lenin and then Doris Meisner will be chairing the question and answer period. Secretary McAleenan. All right, let's see how this goes. All right, we have people standing up in the audience, holding up a flag, a banner. Oh, the banner says, hate is not normal. Hate is not normal, says the banner. Stand up, fight back. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. Mr. Meyer, 
We've got uh, two students holding this banner, but there's uh, the call and response is there's several students in the audience who are responding. Oh no, there's a few sets. There are one, two, it looks like three sets of two students, each holding banners. Thank you very much. We hear you. This is a forum where we respect free speech, we respect your right to protest, but in respect to this audience who wants to hear the speaker, let's save the rest of it for the Q&A period. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Please be seated. We'd like to hear the speaker now. Please be seated. Jacqueline Cole McKean, age seven. Presented! Carlos Gregorio Hernandez Vasquez. Oh, this is interesting. Presented! Please, please, folks. Please, folks, this is enough. So they've got Please people be seated so we saying can the names the of, I'm assuming, kids who are Please. in the detention centers and heckling. Uh, supposedly, this goes on for the rest of the thing, which is only a few more minutes. I'm probably not going to play it all. Don't worry. Mr. McAleenan. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for the kind introduction, Andrew. And for your commitment to dialogue and conversation. Oh, wow. As soon as he opened his mouth, they started yelling again. Let's skip to a little bit later in the video. This is, we're at 23.43 right now. Let's skip over to uh, 28.20. That's damn near the end of it. It's a 29 and uh, 30 second video. Let's see. Are you prepared to stay for the rest of the conference? Then please be seated so that we can continue. They're asking the hecklers to sit. Oh, did they did they send him off the? All right, it is um, nine. Let's see what happens at twenty six minutes. Twenty six fifty seven. Questions and answers where we can engage with the public. Could we please listen? To Let's go back to twenty six thirty. Trying to secure this country. He folded up his book and walked away, man. Looks like we have another figure of purported authority. You're invoking democracy. Democracy requires dialogue. It requires listening. It requires a two-way street. The secretary has agreed to take questions and answers. We are robbing time from the period of questions and answers where he can engage with the public. Could we please listen to his remarks and then have a chance to question him, including people who disagree with him, may question him. Okay, last, last time, team. Um, lot, lot to cover today. There's some very serious issues that we can talk about uh, in candor, in a real dialogue, or we can continue to shout. Okay, what I was gonna start with is that I'd like to take our dialogue this morning above the politics in the daily news cycle, talk about the challenges and efforts uh, that we've faced over the past year, uh, but also given that this is 
primarily an audience of immigration lawyers, advocates, and law students uh, to also talk about some of the fundamental issues we face with the current legal They're framework letting them get in a and its bit. ability to address large-scale immigration flows. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Oh, my God. He just left. Oh, my God. Okay, well, uh, I'm not going to read the story now because that's what happened. Jesus Christ. They're, they're too scared to shut down the, the, the protesting. This is the thing. This is, uh, this, uh, I, don't, I don't even know. No. It, 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 it's indicative of a, of a deep lack of respect. Um, not, not for the guy. I don't give a shit about this guy. But for conversation. For, uh, I don't know. For speech, generally. Jesus fucking Christ. Sit your ass down. You are a fucking law student. You do not have anything that interesting to say. Fuck me. <sighs> okay. You know what? Fuck. No. You know what? No. Start a fucking show. <laughs> Start a show. Do a show. Where you can talk all you want. Jake says at some point it could turn into the Spanish Civil War. I would add LOL, but not funny. Yeah. Right. I say you're a law student and can't have anything that interesting to say while I speak into a microphone. And that felt weird. But I think I don't have anything that interesting to say. I, I just, I, I feel the need to say things. But I say them into my microphone on my show that I started, that I host, that I pay for. It's mine. There's a difference here between having a conversation and just screaming over someone you don't like. And really, it's a, it's a, it belies a deep lack of, lack of respect for... Their colleagues, the other students who are in that audience, who might actually be interested to fucking hear the talk. Because as much as you want to stand up and scream and hold up a banner, absolutely useful in some contexts. I'm not, I'm not demonizing the act. I'm demonizing the context in which they're doing it. If you just want to stand there and scream and hold a banner, go fucking do it outside. You're still making your point, but you're not disrespecting your colleagues in the process. I think ultimately that's what's upsetting to me about it. You got a whole auditorium. You got what probably, maybe if there, if there are 150 students in that audience, you probably had 13, 14 involved in that. You got like 10% of people ruining it for everybody else. I guess that's fucking democracy, though, ultimately. Um, <laughs> published on the 2nd of October from the fire. Harvard enacts problematic policies for controversial speakers. Um, you know what? I'm not going to read this. I'll put it in the show notes, but I'm not going to read it. They are, there are policies at Harvard, and they're, they're problematic. Let's, let's, uh, let's do, let's do the, uh, the thing that it's time for. Let's just, let's just get to that. Credits will do fun. It's time for Who Do You Trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? I'll tell you to who I trust. I trust Superior, executive producer Saw U77 and Xerce, and I trust producers Absurdist Fool and Max Ogburn. Max in the chat right now, uh, kicking some knowledge uh, to us earlier in the show. Thank you very much for that. Um, these four wonderful motherfuckers have been supporting the show for a uh, couple of months, for the least of them, and, and, and for, for a lot longer than that, for... The ones who have been here the longest, and I am I am happy to have each and every one of you 
I'll say it again. Superior executive producer saw you 77 NXRC and producers with Sirtis Fool and Max Ogburn. If you'd like to join them, you can do that at the Rogue File. You can go to the RogueFile.com or Alternative Internet Radio, A-I-R-A-D.io. And there are donate links for Dino Files on uh, both of those places. Uh, thank you so much for your support, you guys. I do have a little bit of an update. Uh, the, as I said, I'm going to be shutting down the Cafe Press store. I don't have a date for that. I just know I'm going to do it. So, like, if you want something from there, grab it. Um, I'm probably never going to see any of the money from it. Uh, I only get 10% of what's in the actual store. Um, so I'm not going to ask them to send me a check for a few cents, which is ultimately what it would be. Uh, but if you want something, if you're interested in any of the items there, go and grab some because, uh, the next store that I set up probably won't have the variety of items over there. Um, we have a goal on subscribe star. That goal is, uh, I'm gonna, it still says $70. I'm going to change that to 65 and we're going to do a call in show on discord. Uh, if you want to join that discord, you can do that at the rogue file as well. Roguefile.com. Um, if we hit that goal, so that's for, uh, for those of you who might be on the fence, people who are listening and, and you've thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll chuck in a buck, uh, as they say on the weekly planet. Yeah, good. Do that. Get us closer to that goal. Uh, we can be part of the call-in show. It would, it would be for, uh, producers and superior executive producers, um, producers and above producers, executive producers and superior executive producers. That's the five, 10 and $20 level. Um, we could do a call-in show, talk about what you want to talk about. Um, it'd be great to... I, I want to do that. I want more... I want to kind of try and build a community around this thing, and I think that's a good way to do is to have a call-in show. So again, Superior Executive Producer saw you, 77 and Xerxes. Producers, Absurdist Fool and Max Ogburn. You are all gods amongst men. Uh, wolves amongst ravens. Diamonds in the rough. Wonderful, wonderful individuals floating around on this dark and dreary thing we call the internet. Thank you all so much for your support. All right. One more thing to talk about. So Liberty Jen on Twitter at Liberty Jen, J-E-N, uh, has, has put together the tweets from the Dallas Police Department because the Dallas Police Department does not know how to thread tweets, apparently. So Joshua Brown, this is a story that um, I think unfolded between shows. I actually don't think I've had a chance to talk about this on the show. Can't remember, but I don't believe so. Um, Joshua Brown, one of the key witnesses against Amber Geiger, who was the officer who murdered Botham Jean in his house, uh, in his apartment. The, the, he was killed. Uh, Joshua Brown was killed. This key witness was killed not long ago. He was murdered on the 4th of October, and he was shot once in the chest and once in the mouth. Shot once in the mouth. I will say this again. A witness against a police officer was shot in the mouth. Interesting coinky-tink, at the very least. Oh, shit. I don't have the coincidence, I think not. Fucking sounder. That's upsetting. Here, I'll drop this one in. Everything is sneaky up around Sneakyville. <laughs> yeah, everything's real sneaky up around fucking Sneakyville. How dare you! They say, the Dallas Police Department says that they caught the motherfuckers who did it. And guess what? Those people don't have badges. And they're from Louisiana. 
They also found, I need to find the tweet that talks about this right here, uh, from the Dallas Police Department on Twitter. We received numerous tips that led us to execute a search warrant for Mr. Brown's apartment. Why you need a warrant? The man is dead now. We confiscated 12 pounds of marijuana, 149 grams of THC cartridges, and $4,157 in cash. They said that Brown was killed in a drug deal gone bad. This dude with no record has no enemies. This was spoken about before he died. This man was clean as a fucking whistle. He was testifying against a cop. He had to be clean as a fucking whistle. But he's got 12 pounds of pot, 149 grams of THC cartridges, $4,000 and change. And uh, they also tweeted this, the Dallas Police Department, the rumors from the Dallas Police Department. I want to read this. I want to read this as I think they intended it to be read. Uh, I'll just, you know, this is my read on it anyway. The rumors shared by our community leaders that Mr. Brown's death was related to the Amber Geiger trial and that DPD was responsible are false. We encourage those leaders to be mindful because their words may jeopardize the integrity of the city of Dallas and DPD and their lives. I'm sorry, that last bit I added. I, uh, I don't know if this poor kid was killed by the cops. I don't know. None of us know. The only people who know are the people who killed him. I don't know if he was killed by these two weird motherfuckers and was, uh, if they were told to do the job, hired to do the job. I don't know. I don't know if these two motherfuckers are just patsies. These people who drove 100 miles to do a drug deal, cross state lines to do a drug deal, pick up some weed they were doing. They weren't even, it, judging based upon what has been said about this thus far, they weren't even there to, like, do a big drug deal. They were there to buy some weed, is the official story. And they shot the man in his mouth. I don't believe this for a fucking second. Not for a second. This is about as believable as Epstein hanging himself with paper fucking sheets. I don't believe this for a moment. Whether or not the police killed Joshua Brown is something I cannot say. None of us can. I can say that I do not believe these fucking pigs. I don't believe them. I think they're lying. I think they're lying. Personally, if I'm a betting man, yeah. Yeah, I think the cops had something to do with it. You don't testify against a cop. Maxo in the chat here, here. Yes, sir. This whole thread uh, from Liberty Jen, I'll link to that in the show notes. You can go back and look at all these, uh, look at all these tweets from Dallas PD. And since I'm effectively utilizing her work, Maxo in the chat, the mouth is a message. I agree, man. I, I, I don't... A person testifies against a cop and then gets shot in the chest and mouth. I mean, this is... This, I mean, they couldn't have been more obvious if they, like, just killed him and then cut out his fucking tongue. They couldn't have been more obvious. From Liberty Gen, personal opinion, it makes no sense to release the narrative this crime was dictated by one of the criminals when there are outstanding arrests to be made. I've never seen this in my life. Okay, good take, Liberty Gen. Um... That wasn't sarcasm. I'm dead serious. That's an interesting thing to point out, and I think she's right. Let's see if there's anything else fascinating about this. I want to read again what this man with no criminal record had in his apartment. In air quotes. Had in his apartment. Put that in italics, underlined air quotes. Had in his apartment. Slash S. All of that. We received numerous tips that led us to execute a search warrant on Mr. Brown's apartment. 
We confiscated 12 pounds of marijuana, 149 grams of THC cartridges, and $4,000 in cash. Having $4,000 in cash is not particularly weird. That's not particularly strange, especially for someone who does business in cash. Like, I've, I've had that much cash on me at a time. That's not, that's not particularly weird. Um, I mean, if you ever paid cash for a car, you've had that much money and hundreds on you. That's not strange. Um, 12 pounds of marijuana, 149 grams of TAC cartridges, $4,157 in cash. No criminal record, though. No record. Testified against a cop, got shot in the mouth. Maxo, fuck banks, not weird. I know. Yeah, that's exactly right. This thing, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm really kind of beside myself about this whole thing. It's, 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 I don't know if, I don't know if it's getting more brazen or if we just know more. Like, I don't know if this kind of thing has always been the case. Well, I mean, with cops, we know corruption's the norm. But outside of that, I don't know if this kind of activity from the government has always been the case. Okay, well, it, it has always been the case. I don't know if they're getting more brazen or if we're just, if we just get information faster. Because the, like, the Epstein thing, this to me is very reminiscent of the Epstein thing. They just put it on the internet. They just say, like, yeah, the cameras were down, the guards weren't there, and he killed himself with paper sheets. You guys, you guys buying that? And the whole world goes, no, we don't buy that. And they say, well, too bad, you have to. And now the Dallas PD comes out and says, yeah, two guys drove 100 miles from Louisiana to buy weed from some fuckstick with no criminal record, none whatsoever. I call him a fuckstick because it just slipped out. I'm not, I don't dislike the guy. I feel bad for him. I feel bad for his family, all that other stuff. I didn't, I wasn't being insulting. Um... Some guy with, with no, no, no prior criminal record whatsoever. They drive 100 miles to buy weed from this guy. It's not that bad out in Louisiana fucking Anna. Like, why, why would you even want to cross state lines? And it, and it goes bad. This, what seems to be a run-of-the-mill weed purchase, goes bad. And uh, a guy who has testified against a cop gets shot in the mouth in the process. Yeah, that... It's just like Epstein. Yeah, he hung himself with paper sheets. You buy it? Yeah, he testified against the cop and then got shot in the mouth by people who drove 100 miles to buy weed. You buy it? No, I don't buy it. Nobody buys it. And I'm afraid the answer in this case is going to be just like the answer in the Epstein case. Well, too bad. You have to. This is proof positive evidence, further evidence, frankly, that the state will walk over whoever the fuck they want. I don't even necessarily think, I don't think race is involved, personally. I think what is, what is happening here is what has always happened. The state will walk over whoever they want. Whoever they want. And it may be the case that it's easier to walk over a black kid. That's absolutely possible. That's a social thing. What I'm saying is I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's cops being racist. I think it's cops being cops. The problem isn't with the mentality of the cop. The problem is with the fact that they're a cop. Hashtag ACAB. All cops are bad. If I wasn't on that train, if I wasn't on the all cops are bad train, it took me a while to get on that train. I believed in the bad, I believed in the whole bad apple thing for a long time. It took me a long time to get on the all cops are bad train. If I wasn't yet on the all cops are bad train, this would fucking do it for me. I'll tell you that much. I feel bad for this kid. I feel bad for his family. Trying to get justice for a man who was murdered in his own home and shot in the mouth for his troubles. At least that's the way it seems. Oh, goodness. Goodness gracious. What can we do about it? I don't know. I think we just have to keep hammering on cops. We have to keep hammering on how bad cops are 
to keep talking about how cops are not your friends and not to be trusted, we we have to keep doing that job. If you want to, if you if you want to be active in this, if you want to be an activist, I suppose about this kind of thing, just keep talking about how you can't trust cops. Get your examples in order. This case, Eric Garner, all that. Just keep talking about it. We can't trust these kids. Fucking dicks in monkey suits with shiny badges. Just walking over people because they get to. Because they have that power. If you can't fix what's broken, you'll, uh, you'll go insane. All right. Oh, that got me depressed. Here, let's get a, let's get a, nice, a nice funny clip. Let's listen to a nice funny clip before we say goodbye. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I will see you all next week. You're all uh, lovely, lovely, lovely individuals. Thanks, those of you hanging out in the chat. Let's, uh, let's, let's get a good clip in here, and then uh, we will say goodbye. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week. A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, you can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at DeanOFiles. You can find the network on Twitter at AltNetRadio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.